Uh, these with this morning we'll be looking the sermon text is technically two and a half chapters. Uh, we won't be here long enough to read two and a half. Chapters. I'm not going to read all two and a half chapters. That'd be a long uh, time to ask you to stand. Um, but uh, these chapters serve really as sort of five scenes. If you read it together, uh, you can you can find five scenes in one act of uh, the play that is Joseph's life, and these they all go together. It all is part of one. Uh, one event, and so you have to treat them together. There's no really good place uh, to split them up. So, uh, but uh, to spare you the whole of the two and a half chapters, uh, we will read Genesis 44, uh, beginning in verse 18 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, it's our practice to stand whenever we read God's word. So let me ask that you do that now, if you're able. Uh, please stand as we read Genesis 44. 18 to 34. Then Judah went up to him, that is Joseph, his brother, and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man. And a young brother, the child of his old age, his brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes, uh, if our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. Remember, Joseph is listening to this. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to shield. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, as the author of these words, as the one who inspired Moses, inspired these words as, as Moses wrote, 
as the one who has been at work to keep and preserve them these thousands of years now, it is also your job, your function, your responsibility within the triune Godhead to be at work in them and by them now. Use them to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Just to remind you where we are, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Genesis together just to remind you uh, where we are. Uh, Pharaoh, I mean, e Joseph is in Egypt and is basically vice Pharaoh of Egypt. I don't know if they had that office or not. I don't know if that existed. Uh, you elect your governor and your lieutenant governor. You elect a president and a vice president. I guess I mean, you elect a Pharaoh and then you elect a vice Pharaoh. That's Joseph's job. He's basically number two in command in Egypt. He's in Egypt because of his brother's anger and jealousy. Uh, 20, almost 22, 23 years before this, uh, Joseph was his father's favorite son. And his father let everyone know it. Uh, he gave Joseph his fancy coat, and everyone knew that's the favorite son. Jacob made no bones about it. Joseph knew, all of his brothers knew that Joseph was the favorite. And Jacob never even tried to hide. He never tried to pretend otherwise. In fact, he even said as much here in the passage we just read. And so his brothers are jealous. But then Joseph also had these dreams. He had two dreams. And in those dreams, his brothers and actually his father and his mother or Leah, somebody else, bowed down to Joseph. And he told his brothers his dreams. And so now they're not just jealous, but they're also angry at him. And so rather than kill him, which was their original intent, they sold him as a servant, as a slave, and he has been taken down to Egypt. That's, how, that's why Joseph is in Egypt. He's number two in command because, you may remember, he interpreted two dreams that Pharaoh had. Pharaoh, God told Pharaoh in a couple of dreams... Here's what's coming. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. The problem was Pharaoh didn't know how to interpret the dreams. He didn't know what to do with them. And so Joseph says, well, I can't interpret dreams, but God can. And he'll give me the interpretation. So tell me your dreams and I'll tell you what they mean. And then he interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And then he offered advice. So here's, what, here's, what, here's my advice, Joseph said to Pharaoh. Start during the seven years of plenty. Keep, I think it was a fifth of all the grain uh, from each year. Keep it, save it, store it up so that in the seven years of famine, uh, we will be prepared, we'll be equipped. And so with that dream interpretation, with that plan, Pharaoh elevates Joseph to number two in the land. Uh, Lieutenant Pharaoh in all of Egypt. In fact, even Judah, in speaking to his brother, recognized that Joseph is like Pharaoh himself. This is the second trip that his brothers have made to Egypt uh, to come and buy 
food. The famine is severe, not just in Egypt, but in all the surrounding area, surrounding territory. And so this is the second trip that they make to come and buy food. You remember the last time Benjamin didn't come, the youngest? He stayed at home with his dad. It's interesting that throughout this passage, Judah keeps saying the boy. He probably was in his 20s, maybe even early 30s at this point. But as the youngest, his older brothers just called him the boy, um, it appears. Benjamin stayed home because in Joseph's absence, Benjamin had become Jacob's favorite. He was the second born of the same mother. He was Joseph and Benjamin are the, the two full brothers in the family. All the rest are half-brothers. Rachel died in childbirth when giving birth to Benjamin. So the last time they went, Benjamin stayed home. Simeon didn't come home. I think I kept saying Reuben last time. Simeon, um, Reuben didn't get kept. He had defended Joseph earlier. Anyway, Simeon is the one that stayed behind. Um, Joseph kept Simeon back in Egypt as a test. So when the brothers went home, ten came to Egypt, nine went back uh, to, um, to their father. It's a test. Would they come back? Would they turn their collective backs on this brother as they've already done once before? That's exactly what they did to Joseph. They collectively... Uh, decided we're done with him and they turned their backs on Joseph. And so now he creates an opportunity for them to do just that to Simeon. He keeps Simeon in Egypt and sets up, creates the scenario uh, much like before. They have every opportunity to go home and stay home and never come back and not bother coming to save Simeon. Of course, through all of this, you remember, Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who he is. They still have not learned his identity. Uh, we've been told a couple of times they come into Joseph's presence. He knows exactly who they are. In fact, I think three times in one paragraph, Joseph knows his brothers. They don't know him. Joseph knew who they were. They didn't know who he was. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 43, there's a... Judah, in speaking with his father, uh, verse 3 of, of um, chapter 43, Judah tells his father, if we don't take Benjamin with us, um, the, then, then the man said to us, I, that's not his, you know, I'm working for the man. That's not the, his euphemism for the government. That's not his euphemism for the guy in charge. He doesn't know who Joseph is. We've never seen a name. We've never seen anything. And so Judah calls him the man, even in the passage we read a few minutes ago. He kept saying, the man uh, won't see us unless we bring Benjamin with us. And so as chapter 43 begins... Jacob's sons are planning for another trip. This famine is still severe in the land and they've run out of provisions that they bought before. And now it's time to go get more. Uh, we, we're running out of things to eat. We've got to go back to Egypt and we've got to get more food. But we're not going without Benjamin. And, and Jacob still wrestles. He struggles. He has this uh, conundrum of sorts. 
But you get a glimpse into Jacob's real attitude in verse 6 of chapter 43. He actually says out loud, Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? Do you hear it? Jacob doesn't really care for Benjamin. Jacob cares for Jacob. How could you do this not to your brother Benjamin? How could you do this to me? After all that I've done for you, you can, you, you parents, you know, you've been tempted to say those things before. Maybe you've even said them before. After all that I've done for you, how could you treat me like this? He cares more for himself than he does even for his favorite son, Benjamin. His new favorite son, Benjamin. And so Judah had a solution. And his solution for his father is this. Look. You entrust Benjamin into my care, and if anything happens to him, I'll take the blame. I will be the guarantee for Benjamin's safety. I'll be the surety for Benjamin's safety. If anything happens, the punishment, the blame, if he dies, my life... If he's imprisoned, I'm in, you know, whatever the case may be, he offers himself as um, collateral, in a sense, for Benjamin's safety. Of course, if they don't go to Egypt to buy food, they're all going to die anyway. And what's the point of having a favorite son if you're all dead because there's nothing to eat in the land? And so they went back to Egypt. The brothers headed off uh, to Egypt for a second time. And when Joseph sees Benjamin um, with them, he tells his steward, look, go and prepare lunch at my house. And they are all coming to lunch at my house. And that's when their guilty conscience kicked in. Remember we, we said before, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Matthew Henry in his commentary on Genesis made this observation. Guilty consciences are apt to take good providences in a bad sense. Think about it. When your conscience is guilty, someone does something kind for you, you think they know something. They know what I did. They're just getting me back. Guilty consciences are apt to take good providences in a bad sense. Joseph sends his brothers to his house to wash up, get cleaned up, take a shower, sit back and relax, get out of the heat, and feed them a big meal. They, however, are convinced. Uh, he knows. He's trying to get us back. We're in trouble. We're in big, big trouble now. See, the last time they were in Egypt, they brought money to buy food. And when they got home, the money was still in their sacks. And so they're thinking, oh, we're in big trouble now. They're going to get us back. They're going to, you know, this isn't his really his house. It's like a poison gas chamber. They're going to get us back. It's some sort of trap. They're convinced. 
uh, that this is not going to go well. In fact, notice in verse 18 of chapter 43, it's because of the money which was replacing our sacks the first time that we're brought in. And immediately they, they run up to the steward, verse 19. So they went up to the steward. They quick, they you know, thought they'd sort of preempt everything. Oh, my Lord, we came down uh, the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks. Boom, there was money was still there. And so they explain everything to Joseph's steward, thinking, well, let's just preempt the trouble we're in. Notice what the steward says in verse 23. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, and he uses Elohim here, the Hebrew word for God. He, your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Now, he doesn't ever say, yeah, I know the money was there. I put it back. He never says, well, I know it was there because I was instructed to put it back. He says, your God is taking care of you. I got the money for the food that you bought. And, and your God put that money there. If the steward physically puts the sack in their Bags puts the money back in their sacks for them. God still did it. See, even the steward, Egyptian as he is, recognizes God's providence in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. The steward is the first, at least in this chapter so far, to admit, to acknowledge God's sovereign work over all things. In fact, we've, we've pointed this out before. This is a major theme in Joseph's life. Uh, God's providence, His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. That's the shorter catechism answer. What is providence? Well, there's your answer. If you want to understand what providence is, go grab a, a Westminster shorter catechism, learn the answer, and you'll have uh, some understanding there. God is at work bringing about His purposes, His plans in His world, among His people, through His means. God is at work in every event of human history and the steward is quick to recognize that. This will become even clearer in just a few minutes. And so when Joseph comes home for lunch, all the brothers bow down to him. And at that point, the hair on the back of your neck should sort of stand up. You should get goosebumps. You're thinking, well, they've bowed down to him before. Not like this. Last time, it wasn't all the brothers. Remember, Benjamin was still at home. This time, it's all 11. Come and bow down before Joseph. And at that moment, his first dream has just been fulfilled. At least 22 years before, maybe longer than that, that he had that dream as a, as a 17-ish year old. Finally, the, the dream that he had is coming to fruition. His brothers are bowing down before him. Now, 
I think, I hope I'm not alone. Surely at least one of you would be with me on this. See, that's when I start dancing and going, nah, 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 I got you. You did it. Remember? See, that's where I start sort of, told you so. Joseph doesn't do that. Not yet, at least. He's still in test mode. He's still uh, in the process of testing his brothers to see what they are really like. And so they all bow down and he sets them up around the table and there are three uh, tables where lunch is served. Joseph, it appears, is by himself. The other Egyptians in the room have their own table because they are not allowed to eat with Hebrews. And so they had their own table and then Joseph's brothers around their table. But they were set up around the table, oldest to youngest. You can imagine they're looking at each other going, Has he, have they figured that out just from our visits here? Or do they know something? Like, you've at least got to recognize how come, how they, they knew oldest to youngest. I mean, at this point, you know, they're, they're not, they're not 10, 12, 14. You know, it's, they're in their 40s, 50s. They're older. Um, and yet, they're seated around this table from oldest to youngest. And here's the test. Or here's, it's really sort of a two-part test. It's either two tests or two parts of one test. They have passed the first one. They've come back for Simeon. Then there's this two-part sort of test that comes after that. Notice the last verse of chapter 43. The brothers are all seated around the table and everyone gets steak and baked potatoes and broccoli. Green beans, what do y'all want? Broccoli. Everyone gets a nice meal. Benjamin gets five steaks. Oh, to be Benjamin. Benjamin gets five times as much as the other brothers. Do you see the test? There's the favorite son getting the treatment of the favorite son. It's an opportunity for Joseph to test the jealousy and anger that still remains in his brothers. See, the last time favorite son had special treatment in front of these uh, ten brothers, Benjamin was sort of not really in the picture yet, um, the favorite son was sold into slavery. So what are they going to do now when the favorite son gets the treatment of the favorite son? Five steaks instead of just one. Five times the meal instead of the same thing that everyone else gets. You might think it would be easy enough to read through the life of Joseph and think that he's actually being vengeful and spiteful, that he's actually sort of getting revenge on his brothers, that he's kind of going, here, Benjamin, you can have five steaks because you didn't mistreat me before. You other guys, ha, just one. Take that. I mean, you could, you could almost read the passage like he's getting them back for what they did before. I mean, you know, why not just the first time they walk in, why not hug them? Hey, I'm Joseph. You know, why not just go ahead and end it all right there and save, you know, I don't know, five or six or ten chapters in your Bible? 
But he doesn't do that. He continues to run through the test. But notice verse 30 of chapter 43. Joseph's not getting revenge. When he sees Benjamin, he lifted up his eyes, verse 29, lifted up his eyes, saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, to my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Joseph's not getting revenge on his brothers. He loves them deeply. And there are several times throughout the account that he has to leave and go somewhere else just so he could cry. Just because he understood that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. And so he had to leave. His emotions welled up within him. Now, remember, this is Joseph. He's a model. He's a bastion of self-control. Mrs. Potiphar literally threw herself at him and said, take me. And he said, I'm out of here and ran away. Nobody would have found out. There was no witnesses. There was no way anyone could know. And he ran away. He's he's the model of self-control. If your idea of biblical manhood is John Wayne, never cry, always tough, stoic, never have any emotions whatsoever, I think you're missing the model of biblical manhood. Joseph, on numerous occasions... Recognizing, recognizes my family is in my room. If ever there's a time to weep, this is it. And there's the test. The favorite son gets the treatment of the favorite son. It's one thing for them to come and get Simeon, but how will they react if the favorite son is treated that way? Will their jealousy and anger Rise up in them again. He's recreating that scenario all over again. And yet, we have the last sentence of chapter 43. And they drank and got angry at their brother. That's not what it says. Favorite son gets favorite treatment and they drank and were merry with him. It didn't seem to affect the, the, the party, the feast at all. Joseph gets a glimpse. This is not the reaction I got 20 years ago. These brothers, they're different. They're not the same today that they were then. And then there's another test. A second part of the test. It involves Benjamin again. And so in the first 13 verses of chapter 44, Joseph tells his steward, here's what you're going to do. You're going to put their money back in their sacks again. Load them with food. Take the money, give them, put it back in their sacks. And then take my silver cup and put it in Benjamin's sack. Put it in the sack of that youngest brother. And so they did, and then the brothers set off, and, and then you get the sense Joseph kind of sat watching the clock. And then he looked at his steward and went, okay, now go. 
go catch up with them and accuse them of stealing my cup. So that's their, he's, he's creating yet one more test. And when the steward gets there and catches up with them, they, they insist on their innocence. Uh, in fact, they're, they're quick to point out sort of the obvious argument. I mean, um, steward. So last time we got home, we had the money in our sacks. This time, we brought that money back. Those people don't steal stuff again. Like, we returned to you the money from the food the first trip, and we brought food, brought money to buy food for the second trip. You don't return money and then turn around and buy it, steal stuff. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And the steward insists, somebody's stolen my master's silver cup. And so they search the brothers from oldest to youngest. Again, they're looking at each other going, there they are again. They know Reuben, Simeon, Levi. They know how to go down the list. And there it was in Benjamin's sack. Right there, the silver cup belonging to Joseph. Now, in verse 9 of chapter 44, they make an offer. They're convinced of their innocence. And they said, look, uh, the one with the cup will die. The rest of us will be your servants. The steward, of course, comes back with, all right, deal. The one with the cup will be a servant and the others will be free. And the brothers are wait. That's not what we said. What we said was, the one with the cup will die. The rest of us will be your servants. The, ser- the steward says, right, great, got it. The one with the cup will be the servant and the rest of you will go free. That, there's that. They've got to be scratching their heads at some point. You're familiar with the three musketeers. All for one and one for all. Are you familiar with the three stooges? Because they, they took that. Larry says all for one. Moe says one for all. And Curly says, and every man for himself. That used to be the motto of these brothers. Together when we have to, on your own, every man for himself, when it serves me best. That used to be the motto of Joseph's brothers. But it's not anymore. They offer solidarity. The one with the cup dies. The rest of us not go home. The rest of us will come back too and be your servants. We're all in this together. His brothers are different. They're not the same people they used to be. And then they show this remorse when the cup is found in Benjamin's possession, they all tear their clothes and weep together and travel back together to meet up with Joseph. And then we have in the middle of verse of chapter 44, the passage we read just a few minutes ago, what Derek Kidner calls um, among the finest and most moving of all petitions... Judah appeals to Joseph. Study his, his appeal. Study his, his uh, speech. Ethos, pathos, logos, all those things they tell you to have, he's got all of them. Uh, they're all in there. He recounts the history and, and appeals to Joseph's emotions as well, all at the same time. They think Joseph is dead. His, 
their father thinks Joseph is dead. Joseph learns in this speech at the end of chapter 44 of, of their father's well-being, that he's still alive. They learn that his father still loves him dearly and, and misses him and, and is going to go to his grave longing for Joseph's return. But he also learns that Judah told his dad, I will be a pledge for Benjamin's safety. You know, there was a time back in chapter 37 when the brothers pounced on Joseph, ripped his coat off, covered it in blood, threw Joseph in a pit and had lunch while they figured out what to do with Joseph. There's a, there's a point there in chapter 37. Joseph hears Judah's voice. It's in verse 26. And Judah's the one that says, look, it doesn't make much sense to kill him. Let's sell him. And then we can make some money off. We're not guilty of bloodshed. We've made money. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have to tell our dad that we killed him. Right? We're free of that. That's what Joseph heard in the pit. What Joseph heard Judas, hears Judah say here is, I've offered my life and freedom for my brother's safety. Judah's not the same. Judah's a different man today than he was when Joseph was in the bottom of that pit. And Judah said, let's sell him. Let's make some money off of him. That'll, that'll profit us more than just killing him. Judah offers himself in Benjamin's place. He says to Joseph, look, here's the deal. I've, I've told my father I was a pledge for his safety. Therefore, would you just keep me and let him go free? Would you take me in his place? I'll be your servant. Let Benjamin go home. And that's when Joseph can hold back the tears no more. That's when Joseph says, now's the time. My brothers are not the same people they were yesterday. They're not the same people that sold me into slavery. They are different by God's grace. And so in chapter 45, at the beginning, he sends everyone out of the room. says, everyone go, get out. And then he turns to his brothers and says, I'm Joseph. Their jaws hit the floor. They can't figure it out. They're like, wait, you're just saying that? That can't be true. And then he convinces them that he is their brother, Joseph. And there's a family reunion. He reveals himself to be the brother they thought was dead. And there's the theme all over again in verse 7 of chapter 45. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And we'll see those survivors, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, but... Joseph, I would be so tempted to be angry. I would be so tempted to get them back. And Joseph says, look, God did this. I see now that God sent me here so that I could be in a place to preserve you 
during this famine. You know, it's funny. The brothers thought they would end Joseph's dreams when they sold him into slavery. In their minds, hey, look, Ishmaelite travelers, let's sell Joseph to them. He's gone. No more dreams. No more bowing down to Joseph. If we can get rid of him, we get rid of all those silly dreams, those childish dreams that he's been having. They were actually accomplishing those dreams. Not only were they not ending it, figure out the negatives in that sentence yourself. Not only were they not putting an end to his dreams, they were actually accomplishing them. They were actually, that's exactly what God had designed. They were actually doing exactly what God had foreordained. Why? So that Joseph could be there to preserve his people, to preserve his family. And Joseph has such a deep trust and confidence and hope in God's sovereign providence that rather than lash out in anger, he simply admits, God's done this. Everything that we've been through, we've been through together because God has been orchestrating His plan to accomplish His purpose and to preserve our people and His people. Let me make just three applications from these chapters. Uh, The first is the obvious uh, application of God's providence in all things. It's a theme that runs throughout Joseph's life. Uh, We see it clearly in this passage. God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. Do you believe that truth? Do you believe that's biblical truth? Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? Oh, that God would grant us the grace more and more to say, yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yes, I trust. I see that God's word tells me that your providence is at work in everything. Sometimes I don't see it. Sometimes I don't want to see it. Sometimes I want to rebel against it. Sometimes I'd rather say, well, luck or fate or, you know, the golfing gods, whatever the case may be, we can choose them all. We'd rather ascribe power and authority to those people, entities, things, non-existent things. When Scripture says that God's providence is at work. Oh, that He would give us the grace that even our attitudes would reflect a deepening trust in God's providence. A second application from this passage. We are typically far more lenient on ourselves than we are on others. We are quick to claim, oh, but people change. And what we mean is, I can, even though y'all can't. Right? I change. I can be different. God's at work in me. And I'm not today who I was before. And by His grace, I'm not going to be tomorrow who I am today. Uh, you, I don't know. I mean, people don't change. You know, once this passage says, by God's grace, God's people change. It's sanctification. It's that that growing in uh, knowledge and holiness and, and reflecting more and more God's image, the image of, of Christ in our 
lives. This is good news for you. You look in the mirror in the morning and go, I don't like what I see. I mean, assuming you mean like, you know, my bad attitude, my complaining. I don't mean like, you know, one, one eye is like three inches higher than the others. You look in the mirror and you go, I don't like what me, I don't like what I see. Be comforted. God's grace is at work in your life. You're not going to be the same. He will change you. He sanctifies his people. But it's also an encouragement to us in our approach to others. That we would be more patient. That we would recognize people change. And some of those people we've said, oh, they'll never be any different. They just might be. If you'll just find out. People change by God's grace. A third and final application. Judah offered freedom, his freedom, for Benjamin's freedom. The greater Judah, his great, great, however many grandson, second Judah, will offer his life for your life. Not just freedom, not just, well, there's no life at stake here in Judah's case. Well, it's not a life. It's just, you know, I'm going to be in prison instead of Benjamin. I'm going to be Joseph's servant, but, but I, at least I get to live, right? Jesus came and gave his life for your life. He came and gave his life as a, a ransom for many. His death means your freedom. His death means you walk free. His death means you live. Not just today, but for all eternity. Which is a perfect reminder as we go into this table in just a few minutes. That we're partaking of the life, the body and blood of the One who looked at His Father and said, this one lives because I've died for Him. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we pray that You...